The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And welcome back to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are always available via podcast on that same website. You can also find us on Kimberly Martin's website, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-E, martin.com. And uh, the shows that I do, you can find on my website, Marie Stone. M-A-R-R-I-E-S-T-O-N-E dot com. All of my Real People of Orange County shows are up there under podcasts. And we are doing what we she does each and every Thursday afternoon, which is talk with Orange County's best and brightest, those men and women who are serving their community in a meaningful capacity. And uh, today we are talking about autism. We're talking about the secret, maybe the now not so secret, Wonder Elixir Camel's Milk and how um, it has helped Christina Adams' son. Christina was on the show with me back in 2015 when we first started this conversation, and she has just come out with a new book that continues it. Um, she made mention of that book back then, four years ago, and about wanting to write it, and it is now here, and I am so excited to talk about it. Christina is an American award-winning writer, journalist, author, and speaker. She and her work have been featured on NPR, The Washington Post, the LA Times, LA Times Magazine, Gulf News, Dubai One, on and on. Her book, Camel Crazy, A Quest for Miracles in the Mysterious World of Camels, explores the scientific and cultural importance of camels and their milk. Her book, A Real Boy, uh, was revealed um, the world of autism and her son's early intervention. Her series, Autism and Beyond, uh, airs on Autism Live, which is autism hyphen live.com an expert on autism and camel's milk she advises families and scientists from many countries uh, she enjoys connecting with people from all cultures christina welcome back i'm very happy to be here oh i'm so so glad to have you back and continue the conversation we um <clears throat> before we dive in i don't want to rehash our our last show but there's a tremendous amount of information that you brought to us last time about autism, about what it is and what it isn't, about myths, uh, misconceptions, things that people should be watching for, support systems, all of that. So I, I do want to make mention that um, you can find that show, again, up on our, our both of our websites and um, mariestone.com or, or KUCI.org. And uh, if you want kind of an in-depth um, conversation about autism, we can do that there. But, you know, you and I today are going to talk more about the, the book and about camel's milk and all of that. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to mention that, you know, this conversation continues up there. Um, so it's useful, I think, for those who didn't tune in the first time to, to get your story, though. So I'd love for you to sort of talk about um, what led you into the, the camel's milk odyssey and, and kind of set the stage for us a little bit. Absolutely. Well, it's a local stage where we begin this story. I was at a children's book festival in uh, Orange County, and my son was reading a book. He was quite content, 
but I was pretty bored. I was a newly separated mother at that point too. So, and it was a few months after my first book, A Real Boy, had come out. So I was pretty bored and looked around, nothing left to do. So I saw a camel standing across that lawn. And I said to myself, well, why is a camel here if no children are riding it? And so I thought, I've got nothing better to do. I'm a nosy rider type person. So I walked over, stared at this animal, which at that time to me was just merely a camel. And and then I said, well, there's a guy over there. It looks like this camel might belong to him. So he was a guy in a green baseball cap. I went over and they were selling soap and lotion made from camel milk. And then for whatever reason, I said, well, what else did they do with the milk? And he said, they give it to premature infants in hospitals in the Middle East because it's thought to be non-allergenic and maybe close to breast milk from humans. And that was my light bulb moment. Based on all the past research I had done into biomedical things and the immune system functioning, which we know is tied to autism, I just had the instant kind of feeling that, A, this might help my, my son, it might help reboot his immune system, which is always connected to his autism symptoms, and B, it might be a great dairy substitute for people like him who cannot handle regular milk. So it's a big jump to go from discovering. So then you you pursued that and and gave it to him with pretty remarkable, instantaneous, remarkable results. I did, and pursuing that was not easy. I went home that day and and I looked online, and there was pretty much zero information. But I just kept pursuing that, and then through uh, talking to people in Orange County here, I managed to get some frozen bottles of Bedouin camel milk uh, brought in from the desert to my hands. It had to travel many, many, many hours and day, uh, probably, gosh, if you count it up, day and a half. And it emerged uh, from the airport right into my hands, and I got it right down here in Orange County, and it just felt like a leap across time. And I gave it to my son, and he got amazingly better overnight. It really exceeded my expectations. So ever since then, I just kept researching it. I talked to scientists, uh, turned up a couple publications that were kind of uh, emerging and so started chasing down camels because I'm a writer and I like to write and I thought wow what a topic yeah so that that must sort of be the answer to my next question which is you know it's a big jump to go from discovering camel's milk and it helps and then the normal person or the average person not the normal person the average person that's not a journalist would say okay you know I'll, I'll use this it's a great thing but you really went um not even the extra step I mean you really went the extra I don't know, around the world journey to um, research what it was that that, uh, it was about this. I have. And yeah, I can look back and say, yes, I probably should have taken a kind of safe job doing X, Y, and Z. But at that time also, my son was pretty challenged. It's hard to have a child with autism because of their many, you know, difficulties. So I couldn't really hold a regular job at that time. But this was something I could pursue in my off hours. But the main thing was... I saw the potential for this milk in so many ways, and I thought, other people need it. Other people are going to need this. Other people just have to know. And I had been helping pretty much people with autism ever since my son was diagnosed. I'd written editorials here in Orange County that really helped change the way things were done in some places, and I just tried to, you know, do what I could. So sort of humanitarian mission, sort of uh, journalistic impulse, and I really do love camels and the people that hang, that take care of them. They are the most interesting animals and the most amazing people. So mm-hmm. it's been a great a great thing to do. So what was the first step? You um you you make this discovery, you start researching, and then do you stick local and start talking to scientists around 
Orange County? Oh, heck no. Um, No, no, no. I had to reach out and find uh, an Israeli scientist who was in Israel, but he had grown up um, around camels and he knew about camel milk, but he also lived in San Diego for 10 years. He's a very brilliant uh, cancer researcher and his name is Dr. Amnon Gonin. So he's in the book. So together we kind of shared our knowledge. He knew nothing about autism. I knew nothing about camel milk. So put that together. So we had a theory of why it might work, which was inflammation, then also some connection to the to the gut and the brain, which as we know now, as I do touch on in this book, for those of you looking for answers, we are much more aware now of how, and we were then, but we're even more aware now in more mainstream science, the gut and brain connection uh, impacts the way that people with autism feel and function. So. We worked together on that. But no, people used to roll their eyes at me a little bit and just think, oh, there she goes with that camel thing. But I didn't tell a lot of people at first because I was afraid that people would bust through the doors basically at customs because I had to really work to get it in. Uh, I won't say the word smuggle, but, you know, uh, better to ask uh, forgiveness and permission. And I did get doctor's letters authorizing it. So eventually I got U.S. Um, Department of Agriculture permission to bring it in and uh I kept it to myself, but I tried to tell people. I did tell people, but I just didn't publish anything on it. So people did start mm-hmm. using it. But then when I found that Amish people in America had started milking camels, I got some of that milk. I gave it to my son, and it pretty much performed the same way. So that told me my little science experiment showed that it wasn't the special feed in Israel, which we had thought, or the desert herbs or some kind of breed of camel. It was the actual camel itself that had the, the ability to make this milk. So ever since then, I said, okay, I'm going to write an article. I wrote an article called Got Camel Milk, and it went viral across the world, and it really kicked off a really huge interest in camel milk. And then a year later, I wrote a science article, and it's a medical journal article, peer-reviewed, and that got the attention of science, which brought me to Dubai and uh, other places. And now it's been cited about 12 or 13 times and has led to other scientists being inspired. So I'm glad about that. Yeah. So when they analyzed, I know that alongside another doctor, you were sort of analyzing what it was about the milk, what separates camel's milk scientifically from cow's milk or goat's milk or sheep's milk or something like that. What um, what are the properties or that they figured out that are unique to camels that the other animals don't have? Well, when you analyze milk, uh, a lot of it tends to look alike and be alike. And in many ways, there are a lot of similarities between types of milk. They pretty much all have, you know, insulin. They pretty much all have antibodies. Uh, their, their, their mineral and vitamin content may fluctuate a bit, but there are a lot of similarities. However, it's the thing about camel milk is it does contain essential fatty acids It has a high level of insulin or a similar protein, and a lot of animal milks do. But the thing, one thing about camel milk is that it looks like the insulin survives in the gut and therefore can be uptaken, so to speak, by the system. So there is uh, emerging evidence now that it's working in diabetic populations, type 1 and 2. And I do have a user's guide in the back of the book that discusses that for people that are going to be looking for that. So it's got vitamins and minerals, but then the most important components are probably, it's got some really great enzymes, it's got immunoglobulins, and some other proteins. But these enzymes are pretty amazing because they are antibacterial, antiviral, they are uh, some anti-tumor activity, and some of them are similar to human breast milk, and they're often thought, looks like some of these proteins have uh, antioxidant uh, capacities, which, as we know in autism, 
the uh, the children do not uh, detox certain things well, and that interferes with their brain functions. So uh, that's important. And there was a double-blinded cl- clinical trial in Saudi Arabia that actually measured some of the, the levels in the children as well as their behavioral autism scores that showed the camel milk had a big impact on them. So interesting. And then probably the most one of the most amazing things though it does have GABA that's calming that's good it works on neurotransmitters it has some probiotics which are great but the immunoglobulins are these little tiny antibodies and they enable baby animals to resist infection before they can produce their own so that's what milk does but the camel immunoglobulins or antibodies are ultra tiny they're one half to one tenth the size of humans and you only see that in the shark and so that enables them to really kind of penetrate and get in the crevices of bacteria and viruses better than other immunoglo- immunoglobulins. So um, there's all, I can go on about little science kind of things, but basically uh, it's a superpower milk. And a lot of really natural uh, milks, especially in the raw farm, are, are very uh, therapeutic for certain of our maladies. But camel milk is really, really spectacular, more than others. And so hard to milk a shark. So they're hard to milk a shark. <laughs> there was a thing about shark cartilage years ago. I haven't really heard. There about was that. right, right, right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like other countries are so much further ahead than the U.S. in in these studies. And I don't know if that's because camels are more prevalent in some of these other countries where they're doing the studies, or if there are just countries that are a little bit more forward thinking than we are in natural healing properties, or you know, where, where they're looking for. Um, more natural pharmaceutical <laughs> solutions to things than than maybe the U.S. is. I don't know if you notice cultural differences in approaches to medicine as you were traveling to these places. I do. So I, you know, had some uh, uh, some work in science areas before. I've written publications. I've done different things, and so I have seen on from a variety of uh, perspectives how this works. So in other countries, first of all, they have camels there. They're not the camel country, so to speak, as I say. They're not looked at it as exotic, particularly. They're domestic animals. So they are not that much different than a cow to some people. So, you know, plenty of dairy industry people over here do science on cow milk over there. Uh, the camel is still emerging as far as the science goes, but there's a lot more of it. And so it's not looked at as particularly, you know, exotic there. But here you say camel and people just treat it like it's a freakish thing, which is just kind of our Western mask of blindness toward, you know, the utility of other animals that we just are not that familiar with. So I do think that that's part of it. When science, as we kind of see in American science, is kind of the benchmark. For a lot of places, like other cultures, a lot of them will say, "Well, we kind of, we don't have the FDA here, but we kind of abide what they abide by what they do or what they recommend." It's a real influencer. But if we waited for that, we would never get camel milk anywhere. Because the other thing, which I explain in the book, is if it's so great for this and this and this, why doesn't the FDA say to, say to take it? Well, the fact is, if you cannot make a drug out of something, then then you can't say, you can't, quote, prescribe it to treat an illness. And that would take millions and millions and millions of dollars to make a drug application. You have to isolate the molecule. You have to do all these things. And then if you did finally put all that money into it, why would people use a drug if they could simply drink the milk? And then some people would only take a drug. I know that. A lot of people have resistance of idea to drink in the milk, but then they might pop a pill. But I, A, think it would lose something essential. B, another company could come along and just knock it off 
So it's not really practical at this point. And if it doesn't make money, science can't focus on it because science takes money. And that's what people aren't really aware of. Science isn't a magical benchmark thing that just appears out of nowhere for the common good. Science has to be funded and grants have to come from somewhere. And if it's not practical in a sense to a community or something, then it's just not happening. Or if it's not going to make money for, right? Yeah, for somebody that needs to make money for. Right, right. I should mention the book is so many things. It's it's memoir and and you're a beautiful writer. So it's it's very visual, beautiful memoir. It's also as we're talking about very scientific and you know the science behind this and the the scientists that you met with. Um it's sort of travel log. It's um an exploration of religion, it's environmentalism, it's cultural. I mean, it's got so much around this camel at the center of it. Um, but, but from that camel, you know, spokes off all of these really wonderful things on this, this kind of, you know, wheel of adventure of, of various ways that you approach it. And, um, so we should get into some of that. I mean, your, your travels with this were so fascinating and you went to a lot of places as we were talking about, um, primary research and you were calling it journalism reporting. Um, but you really went to these places, spent time with the people and, and, experienced a lot of this firsthand. So I thought maybe we could dive in a little bit to uh, to some of the, the travels. Um, what, what would you say was the kind of the most influential country that you went to personally that kind of moved you the most, that you were the most struck by um, in researching this? Wow, what a great question. And so not to uh, scare people off with the science part, I pretty much contain the science to kind of three easy read pages in chapter 15, so don't get too scared off by that. (laughs) And it is a personal narrative, so I try to make it fun and and all that. So it um, it is a journey. But people don't really, you don't want to read science unless it's wrapped in kind of like a story. And so I just make it Easy. Fun, yes. Yeah. But and visual. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. But as far as the country that moved me the most, wow, they all are so special to me. I will say that uh, I think the first time that I was in uh, the Middle East, it's pretty spectacular. The desert is so wide and vast there. And then, of course, you have the buildings now, the modern buildings of Dubai that just rise up in these kind of very amazing shapes. I mean, the architecture that's there is not quite it, like anything that we're used to here. It's very contemporary, but really the shapes are amazing. And then you have that really, really windswept desert outside. And it was just great to be there. And then being in, you know, the, the sea there was quite a great experience. Um, and then when I went to the farm where there are, there were at that time 3,500 camels, it was like a mirage, these beautiful gleaming copper animals just glowing and glimmering was just amazing so that was incredible uh and then though i would say also india really has my heart in many ways the people are super welcoming and there's just the best food you've ever had uh, the most beautiful colors and just people that really uh do engage fully in their culture and live their lives and it's just fantastic and they're but they still welcome someone like me and sitting on the ground at the Pushkar Fair, which is, quote, the the famous, you know, camel fair of the world. But now those herders are very upset. The population's dropping because of uh, some laws that have been passed. And they don't, people use trucks a lot more now instead of camels as much. And so they're very upset. They're seeing their lives uh, pass by. They're, they're, they were created in their, in their, um, 
in their religion by Lord Shiva to take care of camels. Like that's their mission mm-hmm. of their whole people, the Rika people. But that's dropping. And now their children are saying, well, I'm going to the city. Well, I don't care about camels. I'm not doing this. And so I sat there with them. Their grief was kind of palpable. But, you know, they cooked for me. I had a fresh millet roti on the fire, this crusty bread. And you're sitting there barefoot. And people are, you know, sleeping all night. They've walked there for a week to get there with their camels, and, and I'm in the middle of it, and, and they're just really fun. One guy, um, they were kind of challenging me at first, a couple of them, and why shouldn't they? You know, I'm just another woman that popped up there. Might have thought it was just a regular tourist. But then uh, he, um, this one fellow, he uh, offered me his beady, which turns out is a little tobacco, a little uh, really kind of way, way toxic cigarette. And it's a little leaf wrapped with a little string. So he hands it to me. And the group of guys are just staring at me. And I just thought, okay, we'll see what happens. So I, I don't smoke, but I took it. I, and I, I pulled it in my lungs and I blew out a couple streams through my nostrils. And boy, did they just go crazy for that. And then after <laughs> that, uh, he tried to do a ring swap with me. And I did want that ring. But I had to say, uh-oh, this is uh, wedding jewelry. And we all know what that means no matter our culture. But uh, I really still wish I had that ring from him. (laughs) We should say, because we're on the radio, that Christina is um, not as blonde as they get. But you you would not blend in, I would say, to a lot of these cultures. I mean, you you would, you know, be known as as a uh, exotic woman from America, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. I'm a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman, can't hide it. But when you do go to India, it's interesting because people do want to take pictures with you. Complete strangers will come up, hand you their children, one lady took my sunglasses off her face and put them on hers, and we took a picture together. It happens a lot, and if you ever want to know what it feels like to be a bit of a mini-celebrity, you can go there and experience that. But, you know, truly, they're the stars of everything that they do, and I'm just lucky that I get to come in and and uh, engage with them and feel welcome, and it's a real privilege, and I really feel very close to them. And I'm I'm very lucky, too, that um, there's a community here in California not far from us, and it's called Artesia, and there are many... Um, Indian people and American Indian uh, people there, and I was just given a commendation by the mayor of that city for this uh, this book, and that really meant a lot to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's back up and talk about. So you spent um, you've been to India twice, and the first time was a little bit more um, vacation, and the second time you were there for an entire month. So kind of talk about what you were looking for and what you found in that month, because that was that was an all work trip. Yeah. Well. Uh, there is a nonprofit there uh, called um, it's LPPS, the League for Pastoral Peoples. But then there's a dairy that they're getting off the ground there called Camel Charisma, and it's an award-winning dairy. The founder, Dr. Ilsa Kohler Rolfsson, has won a Rolex award because Rolex is they recognize people that do like almost impossible things in the way of business. So she won one of those. So I went over there to kind of help. Uh, raise awareness of the value of this cultural asset in the milk because modern cultures have lost sight of it, even in countries where camels are fairly commonplace. The modern cultures have lost sight of the power of the milk and the value of the camel. So, you know, and it's a busy, busy life everywhere. So you can understand that. So I went over there and so we had a, a public event that the turnout was just massive and really incredible. So the demand there for information about uh, helping autism and other health conditions is quite big. Um, everywhere you go, autism is underserved and no one knows what to do. And doctors are very expensive and the information is scant because really there's no, you know, quote, pharma treatment or easy in and out for it. Uh, but there are many things that work. You just have to go out and dig around. So 
that was great to really uh, see so many people turn out. And in that audience were camel herders. Mm-hmm. And I was also on the stage there with camel scientists. Uh, the, a doctor that wrote a study about diabetes that I'd read about for years, he's right next to me. And he handed me his work. What a privilege that was. And so then after that, we go out into the villages and we went out um, out where the Rika people were. And there were many, many wonderful camel herding people there, very traditional and it was just it's just kind of overwhelming because uh, there's a huge tent full of uh, traditional Rika male camel herders, and they're also sheep herders too. And they, you, you talk about the word dignity, they just embody it. They have the most beautiful, often red turbans, sometimes other colors on beautiful gold jewelry when they're dressed up, white, white beautiful uh, traditional attire. And they're scared. They're worried. This is their life. So I was trying to help them saying, look, this is a business model that you can engage in with the milk. This is what it does. This is how it happens in other places. And traditionally, they don't they don't sell it. It's been taboo. They And that's in a lot of the world. Camel milk was not ever sold. It was given as a gift to sick people. It's like a mitzvah, you know, like a good thing, a good deed. So that's it's having to change a little bit if they're going to survive. So that was really moving to me, and I felt honored that, you know, I get to enter the community and just try to assist. And then I uh, I was uh, going to another village where I got to go way out and with a, a couple of sheep herding women. And these sheep herding Rika women were just so welcoming and phenomenal, and they cooked for me and there I am sitting out there by a, a well, and it's a little hut, a little lean-to where they live for six months to take care of sheep. And uh, they cooked for me, and I got to see the leaf. They, they drink camel milk out of the leaf called the ack leaf, and that was really great to see that leaf in my hand that I read about. And, and I knew just by we, – we had to have our conversation translated, but I knew just by being with them that we had so much in common, and we really enjoyed one another, and it was very hard, hard to leave them. Are there any environmental impacts on them from global warming, or is that touching them or touching the camel? Thanks for bringing that up. Unfortunately, people in these environments that are what you can call arid countries or drier countries, they're going to get hit first. Mm -hmm. Let's say a place like uh, Jaisalmer, which is up in that Rajasthan part of India near the border of Pakistan, it's already really hot. It may be so hot that it's uninhabitable pretty soon. But people live there. This is their heritage. This is their home. So countries where they're getting really, really hot and the water's getting more parched, those are camel countries. The camel can be a solution for many things because for anywhere, honestly, because it takes less water, less feed. The milk is super nutritious. Somali people live on it for years at a time and when they're young herders out in the jungle with it. And it just has so much to offer. But that's why I guess I just feel like, yeah, we look at the camels like this niche animal over here, but we have them in this country and they're in a lot of countries. And so it's just really an asset that maybe can help these people that live in the areas where they're really impacted and our own selves. Yeah. So interesting. Um, I was also wondering about um, gender issues, if you experienced anything, um, if they were as open to you being a woman, a blonde, blue-eyed woman, a beautiful woman. Um, Did that pose any issues in any of these countries? Well, uh, thanks for the compliment. I mean, beyond the marriage proposal, which I guess is... (laughs) Oh, well, those, uh, I do get a lot of invitations to places I wish I could go, but, um, I would always bring my husband if I, you know, could. Right. But, uh, actually, mostly people are really nice to me, and I'm sure there's a level of, you know, privilege that I enjoy. I'm an able bodied person, so I can travel. I'm, 
a person that is non-threatening because I am uh, a female, which is sometimes, you know, obviously safer to be around females statistically sometimes than males. So people are, are really welcoming that way. Uh, there have been different different issues where uh, I have experienced um, a couple of people kind of mansplaining me, so to speak, when they really don't know what they're talking about compared to what I've experienced or what I know. And then there have been some circumstances where uh, there was some unwanted touching and some of those situations in other countries, you can't, there's not a law enforcement structure that you can easily engage with that when you don't live there. And even if you do live there, it can be difficult. But I mean, there is a law enforcement structure, but I'm just saying as a tourist, that is really hard to do. I mean, who has time to stay there and go through a, for, a foreign court system? And so you just get the, like, if something happens to you and it's always unexpected, you're never doing anything wrong. I never do anything wrong. It's just that somebody sees an opportunity and they might take that. Right. And it's really uncomfortable. But guess what? It's happened to me in this country, too. So, and our court system is not perfect either. So I think we all have some work to do, don't we? Good point. Good mm-hmm. point. Yeah. The thing that strikes me as so great about this, um, I don't know if I put the word project on it, but this um, this book is, uh, you know, I, I always like to look at the time a book is born into and where we are as a country and where we are as a culture and, and our thinking. And the beautiful thing about this book is how much it brought home how similar we are and how we are united by our humanity and we're united by illness and we're united by, you know, whatever um, issues our body brings up for us and how many people gravitated towards you in this communion of, I have a sick child too, or, you know, I have somebody I care about too that I'm trying to help. And the way that you can cross cultural barriers and cross geographic barriers to really connect with other people at a time when our own culture is so polarized and sad. I, I feel that's one of the big, I, it's a lot, there's a lot of fun journey in this book and a dramatic journey and all that among a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures in this book you're going to become acquainted with and you're going to be with me as I negotiate becoming acquainted with them. But that to me has always been one of the great things about the story that I've been living. Be being a mother was is universally honored, and especially by people outside this country. They really get it almost in a way more than we do. They really do. And so that provided a very understandable uh, reason that I was coming to people, and they all responded, and they all wanted to help. So it's been pretty great that that role of being a mother, helping some, trying to look for something to help their child is so universally honored. And then it lets really, the people, they know that you're for real, that you're not doing this just because you want to come in and, and do it. I mean, who is going to do that? You would be crazy to go and camel crazy to go around and do all this if you didn't really have a good reason to. So everybody has pretty much been very, very welcoming and helpful. There's a couple of characters that I really am not so happy about their, you know, things they've done or motivation or whatever. But for the most part, 99.9, it's been really awesome. And so learning different cultural things, like when the first time I visited my Somali friends in San Diego, because we have, you know, 20 to 30,000 neighbors of Somali descent there. That's great. I mean, let me stop you there. I had no idea that was true. That's amazing. And lovely people. And I didn't know, like, okay, I I was thinking, do I take my shoes off? And I've learned now that many wonderful Muslim people, they don't, they don't, they say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But really you should. But they're so kind. They don't even say that you should. They don't even tell you. They're very polite, but I've done it anyway. So... 
and then different things. So like uh, I'm, I spend uh, some time with Somali elders here in, in this book and uh, you know, you don't know whether, I never know whether to shake hands or not. Now I've learned that mostly shaking hands is okay, but then I, a couple of times I've tried to do it and it's not okay. But it's not that they don't like me or they don't want to. It's just against their faith. So we'll, they'll do a little dodge. One guy looped his arm through mine and we did a little curtsy thing and that was really great. So you just don't really know what's going to happen, but generally it's all been in the spirit of wonderful community. And you've had a couple of people in here who you obviously don't share, um, you don't see eye to eye politically. I'm thinking of one man in general in here, or in particular in here. Um, and yet, you still you still found ways to kind of bridge your differences and look past whatever disagreements you had with him, and you know, form a communion and get what. Yes, I I um, I have quite a few people in here that I probably would not want to live the, the way that they live, but they have never been anything but really nice to me, which is great. So. Uh, I, I deal with, in, in, in my experience, and I write about this, many Amish people, as we know, that's a very uh, gender-divided uh, uh, culture, and it works for them, great, and we get along great. I don't live by the rules, but I see a lot of value in some of their ways, so I do write about that. And then, yes, one particular gentleman, uh, he's a great guy, his name is Marlon, and he's a farmer in the book, he's a very fine farmer, and yeah, he's a bit of a firebrand in his uh political ways. Uh, he was an Amish person, but he decided to become a Mennonite for many personal reasons, but then that let him go on the internet and let him uh, build his business more and get camels. And so, yeah, he's uh, he's very, very firm in his in his faith. And sometimes we clash a little bit. It's not that I, I don't, his faith is fine with me. It's just maybe more about some, some liberal values maybe versus more old school conservative values. And, but hey, I love them anyway. I love people across the cultures. It's been great. We all get along well. And that's one of the great things. You know, we can agree to disagree, but we're all here for the greater good. And Marlon is a real helper of, of people. He really is. If somebody needs help, he's going to be there to do it. Yeah, I love that. You are listening to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I am here with Christina Adams, and we are talking Camel Crazy. It's her latest. It is a quest for miracles in the mysterious world of camels. And we're going to take a very, very short break, but we will be right back here with you. We're going to continue the conversation. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey.
from my lemon tree and bask in the roots and the sunbeams. I let you wrap your body into mine to one thing. Into one thing. I promised that we'd swim in rivers and mountains with nobody on them. I can't sit your face for too long until my own was gone. And welcome back. You're listening to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your guest host, Marie Stone, in with Christina Adams. We are talking about camels and her book, Camel Crazy, A Quest for Miracles in the Mysterious World of Camels. So let's talk a little bit about the, the writing of the book. Um, because I, it's, as I mentioned in the first half hour, a lot of the research is primary research. You're reporting, you're being on the ground. Um, but aside from that, just the, you know, trying to organize the story and putting it together. Kind of talk about some of the challenges in, in the writing of it itself and in the research of it itself. Well, it was very challenging. So, but I love it because I just happen to pick things that are very challenging. Why do I do that? So I need to just write a novel. But, <laughs> so it was very challenging. So, uh, but I enjoyed it. I guess the, the first part is it's hard to get anything published about camels in this country because they're so not known and it's very difficult. So that's been a challenge over the years, but I have gotten things published in publications. So I'm glad about that. Number two, this book was always about, okay, how am I going to tell the story? Because when I talked to people over the years, they were super fascinated with the personal story. What happened? How did you do this? How did you, one thing led to the other? What happened? Then they were like camels. What about them? What about that? And then you, you get more into the cultural aspects. So I wanted to put that all in there, but and then, you know, when it comes to actually, you know, publishing a book by a, by a, you know, publisher, then you have, they have to slot it. They have to niche it. You know, they have to know how to, how to label it. And so I thought, gosh, I might get a better reception if I just write a straight book about camels. But I was like, gosh, but people really want this other story. So I was, I was, I grappled with it for a while and then I just started thinking, okay, I've just got to tell the story because that's what people really ask me all the time. So I did. And luckily, we were able to uh, have a wonderful publisher that uh, was happy to have it. So once that happened, I'd already had a lot of it written. But then I had to, you know, go ahead and do a lot of more cultural fact-checking and research. So when you're dealing with talking about camels, you're not really talking to people in America that much. There are some here. Uh, the Oasis Camel Dairy, uh, which I'm going to be there actually Thanksgiving weekend this year in a few days. Uh, I'll be there all three days. But... Um, you can come, it's for the general public. But that that's run by a camel expert, uh, and he's actually originally from another country, but he's American. And so I can talk to him in the daytime, but otherwise, I, it, it, late at night, around 10 p.m. is when the Middle East lights up, because that's when they're up and they're available. Around 10 p.m. is when India lights up. That's when they're up and they're available. You know, you're getting emails at, at 11, 12. So I'm on the WhatsApp. I'm on the Messenger. I'm getting a call from the desert. I'll never forget the first time that I got a video call from the desert in India. And, you know, people are doing that now. But, like, a couple years ago, it wasn't that. That right. was not how I was like, what? A nomadic person's calling me from India? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I better <so>, answer. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, lot, of, uh, lot of late night. And the English has been interesting because... Some people that I talk about use Google Translate, but then as we've worked together over the years, their English has gotten a lot better. My knowledge of Hindi phrases or, you know, certain Arabic phrases, which I will never claim to speak, speak or read Arabic, but, you know, just certain things become easier. You can recognize them in print. 
or voice messaging helps. So, and I'm very careful. I did use sensitivity readers for this book uh, of different kinds, and I wanted to make sure that uh, I did not really step on other people's culture in a Western lens accidentally. So I've done the best I could, and I've really tried very hard to to clarify their uh, their customs with uh, with respect. But but then. Um, a lot of science in this. Now, you're not going to see it because the read is an easy read. It's a general reader read. But then I really had to be very careful because when you talk about camels, there is there are a lot known about them, but there's a lot that's not known about them. So I know a lot of scientists now. I've lectured at uh, international veterinary conferences. Oddly enough, I am now on the editorial board of the International Journal of Camel Science. And so Yes, I do these things, so I've learned a lot of science, but I always want to check with the camel experts who are actually cutting them, you know, in surgery, know their musculature, know what they do in the field under certain circumstances. So I'm I'm up late a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is occurring to me now how much, you know, if you think of this bur- book as an iceberg, how much mass of the iceberg lies underneath the water of this book. Because, um, as you say, you really have to be very careful with a lot of these different cultures. And, and, and there isn't just one. I mean, there are many, many yeah. from the Amish, as you say, to the Mennonites. Even within the U.S., there are a lot of mm-hmm. different cultural sensitivities. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue that you have is really well done. So you wanted to preserve um, the way they speak to you, which is English is not a first language for them, um, without insulting them. Yes. And be respectful of that. Yes. Very hard line to walk that you did so beautifully. Thank you. And then, you know, as you say, there's just a ton of science in here that you have to make accessible to the reader, but completely understandable and integrated into yourself to know how to write it. So, Well, you'll be reading fun facts about, you know, the camels, uh, you know, the, the husband camel and what he's doing with, with, in the shed with the 24 female camels and how many babies might emerge out of that. So you're going to get the fun part. But, you know, I had to do the research into the, the ovulation and how they're an ovulating on demand machine, the females, and and uh, how, you know, male camels have this giant thing called the dulla that hangs out of the side of their mouth, which is like a giant red flesh balloon. And I've seen camels, you know, doing their business, making babies, and they're groaning and blubbering and roaring, and their teeth are squeaking and just all kinds of stuff. So um, I don't get too into that, but uh, I have really done the work for you. (laughs) You have done all the work for us. Seriously. And there's a lot of properties in camel urine that are highly medicinal. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw that a few years ago and I was like, hmm. Mm. But then the more you learn about urine, it is used in different cultures and uh, Indian medicine and uh, all that. So Actually, I even was in India with a group of um, Indian people, and I, people, I was talking to this tribal elder, and he said, "Yes, we have a group of a hundred camels. In the morning, we would go out and smell their urine, and then we'd say, oh, this one's diseased,' and we would take them out of the herd, and then we would treat them with donkey feces.' So, um, but the urine is being used in clinics now, quite sophisticated places. From you know, one would assume from what I see. I haven't been there and seen the patients myself, but I've seen some testimonials from them. Who knows? I'm not making any guarantees, but they're being used to uh, used uh, mixed camel milk urine and cocktail in a cocktail with milk, and and it's supposed to taste like kombucha. So somebody go out there and test that for us, and call in and tell us if that's true, because we're not. <laughs> I'm we've, sure I'm we've sure, not volunteered. I'm sure if I volunteered, they would get me to do it, but I'm not volunteering. I'm sure if I were very, very, very ill, then I would 
do it if I could possibly make that go down my throat. I don't know. Well, it strikes me that, uh, I mean, we can move on from this topic, but it strikes me that camel urine might have these properties because it would be very concentrated because they store water for so long. There I mean, go. it kind of makes sense. There right? you go. And actually, uh, it is mentioned in the Quran or in, uh, you know, the Hadith, actually, I should say, um, there's a part about camel urine being healthy and camel milk being healthy. So it's known for a long time to have health properties. Uh, some people get up in the morning, wash their face with it. Uh, some people uh, do things. And yes, it's being used in America. Some people do ask for the urine if they're very, very ill. It's rare, but it does happen. So there is, there's some emerging on that, but I don't really get into that too much because, I mean, let's face it, the, the milk is weird enough and, and none of us really wants to do that if we don't have to. I like the other thing in the Quran, or maybe it's in another religious text about the women, if women drink camel, camel milk for their lives, they're, they're very thin. I just remember them being very beautiful. They're yes, thin, the, they're beautiful. Yeah. That's a Somali song. And the Somalis are a great camel culture, the one of the greatest in the world. Their whole ideas and uh, idea of wealth and, and social structures and all kinds of things, like a lot of that hangs on the camel. And so, yes, I, I always like to know the songs. And when I interviewed some of the people, I said, is there a song? And, and they say, uh, yes. And I said, will you sing it? And this female, she said, no, I won't. But she said, it's this particular one. There's the one about them being shapely and beautiful because they drank it all their life. But this one, she said, uh, it was about a man came to the house and they have to serve him camel milk as hospitality. And he said, no, don't milk me that one. Go milk me the one who was younger. And then how did he, how did, I said, how does he know that that was from an older camel? She said, by the sound of the milk hitting the bucket. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I also like how the camels from different regions look different. You know, that, that you can kind of tell where a camel is from by its coloring or, mm-hmm. you know, it's fur. That's all. That's One it. of my best times was being in the camel souk in Abu Dhabi recently. And you can read about that in the book. And I have a couple pictures. So that's where camels from all over that desert and that region are brought for sale. And there's, you know, racing camel there, lean, sculpted. There's the big camels that uh, they had a real dark worm from Saudi they had all kinds and beautiful. There's a there's a kind of a patchwork camel with blue eyes. I mean, they're mm. just amazing. And being in that souk, and then one of the people I highlight there, he can put his. He says he can put his fingers on the neck of the camel and and tell you so much about if it's going to be a good milker and its heritage just by by touching it. Wow. And I assume they're fairly. Are they docile? Like, are they easy to ride? And they let you. If they're well-trained, uh, yes, they need to be trained to do that. It's called cushing to get them down on the ground. And then uh, there are people here in America that do that. I just spoke at a Texas camel clinic uh, a couple weeks ago from all these American and international cameliers. And so I was in the middle of a giant arena with about, I don't know, 12, 13 camels with international handlers from Australia and scientists from Morocco and Texas cowboys and they were all, everybody was doing different things to teach their owners how to how to uh, work their camels in a, the perfect way. That is so cool. How long do they live? They can live pretty long, up to about 30 years. Do they really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So when you buy one, and all people always say, well, should I buy a camel? And some people are serious. So I do caution you in this book, some of the, the things you would need to know. Do not rush out and buy one unless you're ready because they can. If they're really nice, sweet animals, and they're loving. They're super attached to the owners. And they only give milk if they're happy, the females. But if they get mad at you, uh, watch out. Wow. I'd also love to talk about um, what you learned from some of these other cultures about hospitality and how you were 
how we should treat each other, how you were treated, how guests are treated. Um, it, it sounded, you know, like so many of these other places are a bit more, I wouldn't want to say advanced, but they have a different attitude about human interaction that seemed very sweet. Yeah, I really have had my eyes opened as to kind of the quality of American hospitality being lacking because when I go to other cultures, people say, oh, I will take you here. We will do this. We will do that. You will come into my home or we will do this. And and they mean it and they do it. And it's just so nice. And then I realize here when we see visitors, even in our own family or well, maybe not family, but our own friends, our own you know, circle, and then from other places, we don't do that for them as much as we should. We really don't. And I've really tried to heighten my hospitality because of the modeling that I've seen in uh, the camel culture, so to speak. You do wonder if that is a contributing factor to where we find ourselves these days, that because we're so isolated and because we live in technology as opposed to at the dinner table with each other, well, generally, manners have dropped precipitously uh, a lot, which I see on a daily basis. And, and you can say, yes, manners are an artifice or whatever, but the fact is manners are what enable humans to kind of tolerate each other and they exist for a reason. And now that people, it's weird because, um, you know, face-to-face means you have to treat each other better. Being behind an Internet shield or Twitter or something People are free to be as ugly as they want without consequences. And I hate to see that attitude leak over into our personal dealings because, I mean, we're really all we have. Each other is all we have. Yeah. What was the biggest, what would you say were some of the biggest surprises that came out of this project from where you start to where you ended up? Did you change your mind about anything or was there something that took you off guard? Uh, There's been a lot of things. My paradigm, you know, going into this was, okay, I will try to find this camel milk and see if it does something. And I remember, you know, seeing for the first time people eating uh, in America, by the way, eating food with their hands in, you know, in a restaurant. And I remember I just been back from India and I said, yes, in India, in some places, not all, I mean, they've got the best restaurants and hotels in the world and all that. But in some places, people do share in, um, you know, Ethiopia, people do share, they do uh, pull up the bread, and they make a ball and they'll serve it to you as an honor, or they do use their hands to eat. And so, you know, uh, cognitive dissonance said, oh, gosh, there's people eating with their hands in a restaurant, rice and stuff. But now I'm like, oh, it it feels very warm and and hospitality and affectionate and cozy to me. So I've gotten over that whole don't eat with your hands thing. That's cool. That's mm-hmm. cool. So, so tell me the story about the, um, um, as we're talking about different cultures and the cross-cultural conversations that kind of happened, there was um, there was an Amish man and a Somali man who sort of reminded you of each other in certain ways and were different in certain ways. And I thought that was a really kind of interesting thing to, to both show the contrast of people and the, the differences of people, you know, the similarities. I really want people to meet uh, these amazing uh, people in my book. Um, one is a Saudi young entrepreneur, uh, and the other is the Amish turned Mennonite farmer. And so when they first met, they both are young men with you know, good musculature builds. They both um, have under chin beards. They're both have their arms folded toward each other. And they're both talking about evolution and, you know, what a fraud it is. And, and uh, they're both going to, one is married to a woman who covers her head. The other will marry a woman who covers and veils her face. Um, They both have very interesting uh, fundamental, shall we say, beliefs about 
their own religion, but one is uh, Muslim and one is, uh, you know, Mennonite, basically very Amish still, but, you know, Mennonite, which is very close in some ways, can be, not always, but pretty, pretty similar. So they really got to be good friends at first. But then when the differences emerge and they, you know, try to, it's kind of funny to think of a young Saudi man coming over and giving these Amish farmers, which he did, he tried to give them a Quran and they all said no, but they wanted to give him a Bible and they all said no. So, you know, that's kind of sweet. They're trying to bond. But then when business gets in the way and faith uh, gets in the way, then uh, that relationship was, uh, was challenged. And so I, I enjoyed writing about it in the book and uh, for me to be, I always, you know, really am interested in faith. I always have been my whole life, and and I like learning about them, and I respect everyone's faith to do as they wish. I really do. Uh, but seeing them kind of clash in the personal ways in the world, that was really, really entertaining. That's so great. Oh, we're running out of time, but I do want to get an update on Jonah. How's Jonah? Jonah's your son. How's he doing these days? He's doing well. Uh, I have a part about him in the book, how he's doing now. He's very happy about the book. He's proud of it. And he even now says, uh, I, and he's he's studying, he's in school, and, uh, you know, he has jobs here and there when he's not too busy studying. And uh, he even now says, gosh, I met this guy, and I really think he could use some camel milk. Great. And, uh, and then so... If people do read the book and they want it, there is, like I think I referenced before, there is a user's guide in the back and a list of global sources. And I'll give you the tips on how to do it because when you read the book, a lot of people do want it. And uh, I hope you will come out and see me if you're in this uh, Orange County, San Diego, L.A. area. I'll be at Oasis Camel Dairy for pomegranate days. Join and feed camels a bunch of fun, messy pomegranates, and I'll be signing books and speaking there for Thanksgiving weekend. It's the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and you can find them at oasiscameldairy.com. And then if you're in this area, Tustin, on November 19th, I'll be doing a reading there at Bardo Books and Coffee as part of Lit Up OC. Very cool. I was heartened to see that there are a couple of resources in Newport Beach, right down the road from us, where um, Camel Milk Distributors and somebody, I think, um, just mentioned to me today that she saw it either in a Sprouts or in a... Bristol Farms something. So. Yeah, it's been in Bristol Farms, Whole Foods, uh, Sprouts t- can have it. There's actually a, a person that lives here that, you know, amazingly didn't know I lived here, wrote me as many people do. They don't know where I live from around the world. And then boom, he's not that far from here. So he's distributing some and it's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, you can, you can find that information and the book anywhere books are sold. You can go to any bookstore and they'll order it for you if they don't have it. Order it from your library if you're on a budget. And you can go to my website, which is christinaadamsauthor.com. You can go to Amazon, The Usual Suspects. And uh, I really um, would look forward to you reading it. And I'm, of course, on social media if you want to catch up. You are. And and I do want to give an extra plug for your website because there's all kinds of interviews and other resources. There's some amazing essays. I didn't get a chance to talk about one amazing essay up there. But um Check that out too, ChristinaAdamsAuthor.com. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Good. So check that out. Um, I felt like there was one other thing that I was going to say about how how fun this is. What a great book this is. Oh, I know what I was going to say is that when we talked in 2015, you know, it's been four short years, and you can see the proliferation of the availability of camel's milk and just what's happened in those four years, independent of your own journey. The, uh, the independent journey of camel's milk in the world is has really taken off in the last, yeah, last little bit. Yeah, um, I, I really am glad to see it. I, um, 
I'm really glad to see, I mean, when that first article came out, it was chopped up into a million different languages. And then now it's fine. It kind of funny when I actually, I don't Google things very often for myself, but sometimes it'll turn up and I'll see like, oh yeah, somebody just referenced my article or mentioned my name. And now they're giving a, you know, like doctors sometimes are saying, oh, use it for this or use it for that. And so that's really gratifying. I wanted it to be out in their hands and uh, it's getting there. It's really great to see a need in the world that is not being filled and you fill it and, and then the world comes to you. I mean, I know that you've gotten so much feedback from, from readers, listeners, other people suffering. Um, that's got to be so gratifying. Well, it's so. a, it's a fun read and it also has meaning. So I, I don't think as a writer, we can ask for too much more. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Christina Adams. The book is out now. Camel Crazy, A Quest for Miracles in a Mysterious World of Camels. As she says, you can find it uh, all over the place now. That's all the time we have for today. We will be right back here with you next Thursday afternoon. So until next time, thanks for much for joining us. Have a great, great day.